0: On the second Sunday of this year, we began with um, looking at the issue of ordinances, the right administration of ordinances, where we looked at baptism and the Lord's table. And then last week, we considered the topic of church membership. This morning, I'd like us to look at the topic of church leadership, the topic of church leadership. So, on the topic of church leadership, the first thing i like us to see is uh, is the topic of Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And church leadership, we'll see Jesus Christ as the head of the church, and then we'll see the topic of eldership. And I guess time will not allow us to, to look at the topic of deacons, but uh, we hope to cover that uh, at another time. So, if you, if you turn to Ephesians... Chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, someone can read verse 22 and 23. all things under his feet and gave him as help over all things to the church which is his body the, full, the fullness of him who feels all in all hmm. so there's an lem- element there in which the Bible tells us that Christ is the head of the church we can look at other verses the same book, Acts chapter 5 verse 23 Acts chapter 5 verse 23 Someone can read that Chapter 5 verse 23. Ephesians. Sorry. Ephesians, sorry, I confused that. Sorry for that. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. The
1: husband is the head of the wife. even as Christ is the head of the
0: church, his body, and himself is Yeah, so. reference there again that Christ is the head of the church and then a last verse I'd like us to see is Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 someone can read that So so it's very clear from scripture that Christ is the head of the church. But this has not been always the case because if you look at church history, many people have lost their lives because of this doctrine. Before the reformation, there was a uh, reformer called John Huss and he wrote a treatise on the church in which he mentions three critical components against the Roman Catholic Church. And he says, the first component, he said, the Church was made up of all the predestined believers of all ages. The second thing he says, the authority of the Bible was higher than the authority of the Church. And then thirdly, he says, Jesus Christ himself is the head of the Church. And by that very statement, he defied the Pope. He wrote, the head of the Church is not a Pope, who through ignorance and love of money is corrupt. So he denied that any man can be the head of the church, especially man who lived. And he said, all reprobate leaders are disqualified from leading the church in any way, but Jesus alone is the head of the church. And so he says to rebel against the Pope was to obey Christ as head. And, And we know that he... He was put to the stake. He was, he was martyred, and it was not only him, John Huss, but many others have lost their lives because of this very doctrine. Back then, the Roman Catholic Church, and even today, they hold to papal headship over the church. They say that the Pope is the head of the church. They say that the Pope possesses full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the old church. They say that the Pope is the king of the church. And so, we know that the Roman Catholic Church dumps anyone who does not hold that the Pope has supreme power of jurisdiction over the universal church, each and every church. And so, the Pope is to them, the Pope is the head of the church, and, and, and many reformers referred to the Pope as the, as the Antichrist. Uh, John Calvin says, some think of us too severe when we call the Roman Pontiff Antichrist. You see here that the Pope has exalted himself above Christ and above God himself. Charles Spurgeon says, of all the dreams that ever deluded men, and probably of all the blasphemies that have ever that that were ever uttered, there has never been one which is more absurd, which is more fruitful in all manner of mischief than the idea that the Pope of Rome can be the head of the Church of Jesus Christ. No, these popes die. Uh, these popes die, said Spurgeon. And and how could the church live if its head were dead? The true head ever lives and the church ever lives in him. He went on and he says, Christ did not redeem his church with his blood that the Pope might come in and steal away the glory. He never came from heaven to earth and poured out his very heart that we might purchase his people that a poor sinner, a mere man, should be set upon high to be admired by all nations to call himself God's representative on earth Christ has always been the head of the church end of quote and so we see that the great reformers, the the puritans the preachers throughout the church history have held to this truth that indeed Christ is the head of the church and this is a very serious doctrine and three things I'd like us to point out Three things. The first thing is is the meaning of headship. What do we mean when you say Christ is the head? The meaning of headship. Headship means is the governing ruling authority who rules through what he says to his church as any ruler does. And so What he requires, what he commands, what he asks. Christ is the head of the church. So headship simply means the governing, ruling, authority. If you look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 and 10. Someone can read that. Philippians
1: chapter 2 verse 9 and 10. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. Therefore,
0: God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that so that at the name
1: of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and earth.
0: So we see there the the response we ought to have with regards to his headship. With regards to his headship, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. So that's what it means for Christ to rule his church. He is the ruling, governing authority. And then secondly, who made Christ the head of the church? If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, Who made Jesus Christ the head of the church? Ephesians chapter 1. So, Paul is, is praying and he says in verse 16, Ephesians 1 verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. the knowledge of him and then verse 18 says having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the Saints and then let me turn let me move to verse 20 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places so this is talking about God what God has done God raised him from the dead, God seated him at his right hand. The right hand there means the the place of prominence, the place, the the highest place. It's not literally the right hand, it's, it's the most prominent place. And so, after his death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. And it says there that he took his place at the most prominent place. Far above, he says there. Far above. He is exalted in the heavenlies. Far above. Way up. And he's given all authority, all power, all dominion, all sovereignties. He's up far above all of them. All of them. And he and, and says, just in case anything is left out, he says there, every name that is named. So there's, there's nothing really below him. He is far above, way above all things, any rule, any authority, any power, any dominion. It says not only in this age, but also in the age to come, now and forever. So Christ is sovereign over all beings who exist now and forever. There is no change. And then verse 22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So he's the king of the universe, he's the king of creation, he's the king over everything that has ever been created, material and immaterial. He's the king over all of it now and forever. And then verse 22 he says, he gave him as the head of all things as the church. It's true that he's been given as the head of the church, but here he says he gave, who was, the one who was already the king of kings and the lord of lords he gave him to the church the universal sovereign over the entire created universe takes his rightful place as the head of the church and then a verse we've looked at Colossians 1 verse 18 it says that he himself might come to have first place in everything and and Christ doesn't Simply give us pastors and teachers and theologians to 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 enable us um, advance His kingdom. He gave us the rule of the universe, and Christ is His Christ. The church is His body. He says there in verse twenty three of Colossians one, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What this means is He gave us a head whose life flows down in us. He gave us the king of the universe. He gave us the best. He is the good shepherd. And so all knees should should fall, fall and, bow, and bow to him. The Pope should humble himself and face the true head of the church. Everyone who denies the lordship of Christ who denies his headship we see very clearly that he's not following the word of god and all should humble themselves and fall your face before the true head of the church and then thirdly how how Jesus Christ rules his church how does he rule his church turn to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 We'll see how he rules the church. Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty three. Someone can read that. Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty three. Even as Christ is the head of the church, called, and himself his So how does he rule his church? The end there, it says, Christ is the saviour. He rules by being the saviour of the church. And so what Christ does is to sovereignly save his church, and that's how he builds his church. And we know that the, he promises that the gates of hell shall never prevail. And then in verse 25 he says, someone can read verse 25 of Ephesians 5. We see what Christ how Christ has saved his church. He has saved the church by giving himself up for the church. He says there so Christ saves his church by sacrificing himself for his church. And then secondly secondly as far as how Christ rules the church is so we've seen that he rules by being the savior of the church and then secondly he supervises his church. Look at verse 24 of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Someone can read that. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 24. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 24.
1: Now as the church submits to Christ, also, so also why it should submit in everything to
0: the husband. So the church submits to Christ to show that Christ the church is subject to Christ. So he's the one supervising the church. So this is how he rules his church. And then thirdly, he sanctifies his church. Look at verse 26. Someone can read that. Ephesians 5, 26. He sanctifies his church. So Christ sanctifies his church, so he saves his church sovereignly, he supervises his church sovereignly through instructing and subjecting the church to his word and his spirit. And then here we see that he sanctifies the church through the purification of the word and the cleansing of sin. And then fourthly, how does he reign in the church? He reigns by securing the church, verse 27 of the same chapter. Someone can read verse 27.
1: In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without permission.
0: So he secures his church, he will present to himself the church, and so nobody else is going to do it, he'll do it himself. And this is someday in the future glory. So, in the meantime, he supplies for his church. He nourishes and and cherishes his church. That's in verse 29. And so he moves his church along with all they need to grow and flourish. So, we've seen there how Christ rules his church. He rules by sovereignly saving his church, supervising his church through the work work of the word, sovereignly sanctifying his church by cleansing from sin, and then securing them future glory. That is verse 27. And then verse 29, we see there that he nourishes and he cherishes uh, his church. So Christ indeed is the head of the church infinitely and eternally. And so this calls us to submit to his lordship because he loves his people. And so when we submit to the lordship of Christ we are submitting also to the loving leadership in this church in his church and so we acknowledge that Christ is the head of the church and we are s- submitting gladly to his saving supervising sanctifying securing power and will and so even today w- we see the this doctrine of the headship of church of the church is, is attacked yet it is very clear from the bible If Christ is the head of the church, then we ought to hear his voice through his word, through the faithful, accurate preaching of his word. If Christ is the head of the church, then we obey his commands. We follow his commandments. And so the church, this doctrine is is very central to the Christian faith and we ought to defend the honour the authority of Christ as the Lord of his church. and So whenever church ministry is not done biblically, when the word of God is not rightly handled, when instructions, ungodly instructions are dispensed, then the headship of Christ is overthrown. This is because the voice of Christ in the church is, is silenced. The church is stripped of the mind of Christ, so there is indifference, there is ignorance of the Word of God. So when the preacher is no longer the voice of the Lord to his church, the preacher is not able to rebuke error and sin. There's there's no clarity in the pulpit. The worship is compromised and people are robbed from seeing the glory of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this is one of the doctrines as a church we We are there to we are there to follow and not to compromise. And then secondly, if Christ is the head of the church, He's given to the church leaders. And one of the leaders in the church are the elders. The elders or the pastors or the overseers or the bishops. So turn turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a very important chapter. 1 Timothy chapter three. It's a chapter that, yes.
2: Before we Before we move there, mm-hmm. I had a comment on uh, the the headship of Christ in His church, mm-hmm. and uh, what we what we find today is people establish ministries mm-hmm. and. People plant churches, yes, and when they do this, then they crown themselves the head head of the church. Mm -hmm. And so you will find, uh, you know, all these things that are common to us today, where uh, you know, like the signpost that we have out there has the pastor and his wife, Mm -hmm. and then it has, if 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 it's not his ministry directly, it has the bishop of the highest church for example Mm. and and such things make it seem as if those people are Mm. the heads of their churches Mm. so much so that even if they even if they sin or they do something that is inappropriate Mm. they can't be there's nothing that can be done to them because they've supposedly placed on themselves the crown of the head of the church Mm. and therefore it belongs to them they do however they please with it yes and 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 therefore you will hear men like uh, say that uh, uh, he is the one that has the the greatest business, mm. and the, the others are just small businesses under his. Yes, and and that's being an implication of not not quite understanding and mm. not quite submitting mm. to the headship of Christ in this church.
0: Yes, yeah, B- B- they will not claim that they are the head of the church, like like the Pope will claim. But the way they conduct themselves, they run their ministries, it shows really that they have not submitted to the word of Christ, to, to Christ's commandments, as 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 Brother Kahura is saying, the, the minist- their ministries are for themselves. It's for their selfish gain. So thanks for that. First Timothy chapter one, chapter first Timothy chapter three, this is indeed a very important chapter. And it lays out the qualifications for church leadership. So we have Christ as the head of the church and He's appointed leaders under him. And those people are to serve in the church, in leading the church, in ministering in the church. And those people ought to be qualified, as, as we've seen in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So the qualifications there are very explicit. It's it's so important that the church understands the qualifications of its leaders. And those qualifications are also there in, uh, in Titus chapter 1. So it's obvious that whoever leads the church will determine what that church becomes In large, in large measure. So the life of the church, the ministry of the church, the testimony of the church, the impact of the church, the reputation of the church, The character of the church, the outlook of the church is dependent on the leadership of the church. And you can look at the church and you can determine by the nature of its ministry the kind of leadership, by the kind of leadership it has. So, church leadership is an important aspect of the New Testament teaching. In other words, in more ways than one, people are like their leaders, there's a close connection between the quality of the leadership in a church and the character of that church jesus says in luke chapter 6 verse 40 a disciple is not above his teacher but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher So so we see very often that the church will not rise above its leaders If, if its leaders are mediocre the church will be mediocre so the position of leadership in the church is very important to the church. And the church is called the pillar and the buttress of truth. And that means that the church ought to have exemplary leaders. And so in 1 in Timothy chapter 3, I want you to understand the context of this uh, chapter. So many years have gone since... Peter started the church in Ephesus. And we know that he preached, he pastored the church here in Ephesus for three years. So Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and Paul is writing to him this first letter. And we know that when it came to a time for Paul to leave, we read in Acts that the the people fell over and, and wept and kissed him because they didn't want him to go. And so the church there was firmly established. And and God has adduced the church in Ephesus to plant other churches in Asia Minor. And so by the time Paul left, um, he returns after his imprisonment to, to Ephesus. So he was imprisoned in Rome. And then he passes by Ephesus on his way to Macedonia and he notices that the church is on a downfall and the real problem was that the church was led by false teachers. If you look at Acts chapter 20 there's a sense Paul foresees what will happen to the church. Acts chapter 20 verse 28 Acts, chapter 20, verse 28. So, Acts, chapter 20, verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves. So, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he's saying, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. And then verse 29, says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul knew the enemy. The devil will plot an attack against the church of Jesus Christ. And when he gets out of prison, we see that he goes to Ephesus to, to meet Timothy. And here he learns that the church has been invaded by false teachers who teach lies and heresies. And, and he leaves Timothy and he sets for Macedonia. And it isn't long before he pens this letter to Timothy, instructing him to set things right in the church. And the major issue that Paul addresses is about the qualifications of church leaders. And so this passage is, is very critical for us in understanding this vital issue often many churches are very lenient on these qualifications and and this has resulted in in a very low level of spiritual leadership and so the standard of church leadership must be at par to what the word of god demands and so one of the distinctions in which we strive as a church is to have godly leaders Maybe there are things we are striving towards but we thank God that this is one thing that we don't compromise. And so the impact of this church, Trinity Reform Baptist Church, is a direct reflection of the godly characters of our leaders. The life of the church, the fellowship of the church, will be blessed by God because of the leadership that god has given to us and that of course is by his grace and not credit to anyone so leadership is an important element in the life of a church so first timothy chapter three, verse. first i'll read the first two verses first The, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer desires a noble task therefore an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife sober-minded self-controlled respectable hospitable able to teach so most likely this was not the case of the church in ephesus the implication here was this is what they ought to be and they were not if you look at chapter 1 of the same book 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3 and th- 3 to 7 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3 to 7 someone can read that remain at Ephesus so that you may
1: charge certain pastors not to, teach them,
0: not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith
1: Fame of, the aim of our church is love that issues from a
0: pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith Certain persons by swords have wandered, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So men in the church in Ephesus they had risen to a position of leadership and is saying that they were teaching a different doctrine. Verse three. Uh, they were devoted to myths and endless genealogies rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 4, and Paul even talks about in verse 6, some have wandered away from into vain discussion. And then chapter 2, verse 12, the same book. Someone can read. Chapter 2, verse 12. Yeah, so the assumption there is that there are women there in the church who had risen to a position of authority; they are exercising the authority over men. And Paul gives us the reason there in verse thirteen why women cannot exercise authority over men. He says, "For Adam was formed first, then Eve, because Adam was formed first, then Eve." So it's a creation order. It's not us placing um, this command over our our congregation, it's simply the word of God. And and, and God says, it's the creation of order. It's the way he himself decided it to be. And he says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, verse 14, and became a transgressor. So so that's the reason there. And then uh, chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, Chapter 4 verse 1 to 3, someone can read that. So we see some of their lies there to abstain from certain fools to keep away from marriage and in verse 7 of chapter 4 he says have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths rather train yourself to godliness in other words the leaders of the church in Ephesus they were conforming to heretical standards to false teachings and, and they needed a public rebuke and, and, and Paul says to Timothy, be, be cautious to whom you put in leadership. If, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with faith, he's puffed up with, the conce- with conceit and understands nothing. That is 1 Timothy chapter 6. So some were serving for self-gain, for personal gain. They were in need for money. So th- th- these were sinful elders and pastors, and they needed to be rebuked publicly. And so we see the the problem that was in the church, it flowed from bad leadership and godly leadership. And and that's always the way it is. The most important single element in the church is its le- leadership without question. So-, so the perception really we, we get As we've read those verses, is that there are people in the church who are teaching false doctrine, false religious systems, and they are living wickedly. And so Paul is instructing Timothy on the need for godly leadership. And so again, this is a stern rebuke of false leadership. You come to the episodes of Paul, of Peter, of John, and, and in some way, they deal with the matter of false leadership all of them in one way or another so it's it's a grave matter in the kingdom of God to deal with spiritual leadership and so no person should aspire to that position without very serious consideration of what is involved and so as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 i want you to see the i want you to come to grips with the seriousness of this matter So I want you to notice that these qualifications do not talk about their duties, it's more of their character, and the standards of church leadership are so important. So, the first thing there I want you to see, verse 1, is is the issue of the call. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone has passed the office of overseer, he desires a noble Task. And so the question many young people who want to get into ministry ask is how do I know I am called? And the answer we have there in the New Testament is if anyone aspires, if if anyone desires, so that's crucial. All we have in the New Testament as it relates to a call is is the issue of desire, is the question of what are you compelled to do? See, this is a call, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's there's a strong desire, there's a compulsion of the heart. So, the saying is trustworthy. What does he mean by that? The saying is trustworthy. He means that what he's about to say, what Paul is about to write, is of great importance. The phrase means that this is the truth, and everyone knows it, and it it doesn't need any proof. It's obvious. This is a believable statement. And he says, if anyone has passed the office of a seer, he desires a noble task. You see here that our background, our Christian background, for example, does not make one fit for Christian, for church leadership. Schools, seminaries do not call men into ministry. The only one equipped, the only one called is, called, is called by God. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and the schools and the seminars, they, equipped, they equip one who is called. And so this call cannot be diminished. In fact, this call cannot even be analyzed. It's not about talent. It's not about eloquence. It's not about personality. We see here that it's a question of a strong desire a strong desire which compels someone to serve God. So the person pursuing eldership in the church does so on the outside because he's driven on the inside. There's a strong compassion on the inside. So you may love the Lord, love his church, and you have set a good example to be followed. But what is important what is important as one aspires to this office is, is a strong passion a strong passion that drives a man to only one option and so the, the, there are those who get into ministry for money uh, we have a case in in third john verse, verse 9 about the but we see that the motivation really is not money the motivation is, is is the compulsion, a strong compulsion. And so this compulsion is is a desire for service, not a desire for money. It's a desire for for service. It's not an ambition to to make a name for yourself. Um, In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, uh, leaders are warned that they will give an account to God of how they handle their position. In James chapter 3, verse 1, Bible says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So the responsibility here is so great for one in the position of leadership. And then secondly, I'd like you to see that the call is limited. The call is, is limited. If you read through from verse 2 to 7, you'll notice that it, it takes the, the masculine form. The adjectives take the, the masculine form to show that this call is limited to, to men alone, but it also it's not all men, men who are only called, and and it's very descriptive here in the masculine form and then look at verse 2 he says therefore an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife sober minded self controlled respectable hospitable able to teach not a drunkard not violent but gentle not quarrelsome not not a love of money and then verse 4 he says he talking about men and then verse 6 he must verse 7, moreover he must so, so, so the, 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 it takes the masculine form to show really that this call is, is limited, it's, it's a high calling it's, it's a noble task in which a man commits his life to it's a very noble occupation so beginning in verse 2 we see that after the call It begins to to list the qualifications to affirm such an aspiring man so it's it's one thing to seek to enter into ministry but it's something else to be qualified to serve in the ministry and so here we move from a man with a desire in verse one to the church with a responsibility so as much as the man has the desire to do this it's the work of the church to qualify that man and to affirm his qualifications so this is the church's responsibility so they are uniquely set aside by the church uh, for the work of ministry and and to set aside really means to to appoint means to to ordain and In the in the earlier days, in the early days of the church, men were set apart by the laying on of hands. And so when you wanted someone to be set aside for ministry, the pastors, the apostles, the disciples, they'll put their hands on this individual to affirm really their union with them, their identification with them. And so there is a sense in which they are transmitting ministry, blessing to them. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 14 <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 14 <laughs> It says do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you So Timothy was ordained the ministry by the laying of laying on of hands of the elders now the idea of laying on of hands comes from an old testament symbol when when a jew went to give his sacrifice he put it on the altar and then he put his hands on the sacrifice and he did it as an act of solidarity as an act of union saying i'm the one with this sacrifice this sacrifice will pay the penalty of my sin so in a sense it's in my place and I offer this so this is a symbol of identification and so this practice is continues in the New Testament and, and, and Timothy is warned in chapter 5 verse 22 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 22 is warned and, and Paul writes and says do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others keep yourself pure so he's warned here not to lay hands suddenly on a man, why because you may be partaker of their sins, in other words, if he's a sinful man and has no right to be in the pastorate and you ordain him for that, clearly it says there that you're a partaker of his sin, so this is a very weighty responsibility. so when elders affirm by putting up putting their hands on on men who are suited, who are ready, who are qualified for ministry there's a sense they are identifying with them in such an intimate way if these people are sinful those laying hands on them, they also carry the responsibility of their sin And so the warning here is not to lay hands on anyone suddenly without proper evaluation so it's the task of the pastors of the elders of the church to confirm others into this very sacred trust we've been looking at the book of acts in the evening bible study if you look at acts chapter 13 which we recently saw acts chapter 13 verse 2 someone can read that Ask, ask, sorry. sorry. Please go on. But they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. The say,
2: set apart for me Barnabas, And so, for the work to which I have called them.
0: So when men were set apart for ministry, we see here what practice was there. Church committed themselves to fasting and prayer. It says there was verse 3. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And then look at ch- uh, chapter fourteen verse twenty three also the same book acts chapter fourteen verse twenty three someone can read that acts fourteen twenty three someone can read. So we see there the practice again The church being committed to prayer and fasting Before appointing leaders So this is indeed a great responsibility It's a great responsibility Acts chapter 20 verse 28 We saw that verse It says that the Holy Spirit has, has made you overseers So it's the work of God Yes the church is laying hands of you on you The church is praying and fasting very clear here that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to put that desire in the heart of men to pursue ministry so the call is demanding it it demands energy, effort, zeal, commitment you can't lie low in ministry this is a a lifetime task it's not a a one time deed it's a lifetime task Um, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5 Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5 he says As for you always be sober minded and you are suffering do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry do the work of an evangelist He's saying don't do it doesn't mean that you do it today and tomorrow it's a lifelong work And so a man who takes the position of eldership or an, of a pastor is a safe stands on the throne of God, to speak the word of God. And it's a worthy calling, a high calling, a holy calling. It's a worthy task. So if, if you look again to chapter 1, Um, chapter 3 of First Timothy it says therefore an overseer must be above reproach let's stop there so therefore there means because of verse 1 because of verse 1 because of this sacred trust this high calling this person must be He says they are above reproach i know some of the uh, bible have the phrase blameless they must be blameless they must be beyond reproach so it's necessary for this person to be blameless so this is this is a basic overall requirement and by the way it's, it's talking about the present, blamelessness. It's not talking about your past life, uh, ha, about how you lived in sin. It doesn't mean that in, in the past there wasn't something wrong with you. It means that in the present, this man is, is blameless. No one, obviously, has been blameless in all his life. It's, it's not a question of what you did in the past. It's a question of your present life present blamelessness so we all know that a christian can never be perfect he can never be blameless so so the point here is to say that you cannot lay an accusations against him that's the idea that there's nothing to presently accuse him of so this person obviously is not perfect he's, he's not without sin he, he has this obvious defect but this obvious defect is not obvious in his character so, so, so it's, not, it's not a public sin which everyone is aware of nothing and, and this is important because he is the supreme model for the congregation to follow. Uh, Paul says follow me as I follow Christ. If you follow him is ideally saying is is not going to have any obvious defect in his life. So so this this is a very important um requirement because it's an overarching requirement in which we will see that that he ought to be beyond reproach in his family life he is he's supposed to be beyond reproach in his moral life in his spiritual life so if if he's sinful in in any area of his life maybe be it his preoccupation with material things, lustful desires, whatever the case may be, if if there's any kind of blight in his life, you see, that allows him to demonstrate to others that you can live an imperfect life and still be a spiritual leader, that that you, you, you you can be unqualified and still serve. But what I'm saying here is there's not one single public sin in his life which everyone points and everyone knows. If if that's the case, he's disqualified. So if he's not a positive model, he ceases to be a model. So the reason why blamelessness is, is called really is because the, the elders are an example to others to follow. So blamelessness is um, a very important aspect. So, I guess time will not allow me to to cover everything, but l- let me just say this. We see here that there are four areas of blamelessness. There are four areas in which the pastor is called to be beyond approach, and the first thing is to do with his moral character. He says there, verse, verse 2, he says, um, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable not a drunkard not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome not a love of money not arrogant or quick-tempered and so also we see the moral character that is, should be above blamelessness secondly the second aspect of blamelessness is his domestic life domestic life he says there the husband of one wife hospitable manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive so we see there he, he should be a husband of one wife um, it doesn't mean that those who are, who are not married cannot serve in the ministry the issue here has to do with his sexual purity the husband of one because if you say that people who are not married cannot enter into ministry, Paul himself was was not married, and he calls himself an elder. He was an elder. So, so, the issue here has to do with sexual purity. And he says, a husband of one wife means he's faithful to this one wife. His eyes are devoted only to this one woman. So, a husband of one wife. And then he says, manages household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. The, again, the idea here is assumed that men will marry, men will have children. So the issue is, so, so that's the second thing, moral character, the second thing is domestic life. Thirdly, has to do with pastoral life. Pastoral life, and he says, it should be well thought of by outsiders. He should be able to teach. Must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So thirdly, it has to do with his pastoral life, the blamelessness in his pastoral life. And then fourthly it has to do with spiritual life. Spiritual life. If you look at chapter three, verse six, he says, He must not be a reason. Convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil so, so he must not be a young believer because he must he may be lured into sin um, because of time will not be able to cover um, each of those. Uh, moral qualifications but let me speak of one important thing there about the pastoral life it, it says in verse 2 that at the end there that he must be able to teach so so this is a qualification that also relates to his function this is not only about his character but, but also about his his function it means he's skilled in teaching and so this this is a qualification that sets them apart from deacons because deacons are not required to be able to teach so this is skill in teaching that goes along with the unique moral spiritual qualifications of the man so the man is highly qualified with addition to with the addition of skill and teaching is able to teach and so he's able to teach effectively if he lives up to what he teaches so, so it's um there's an aspect in which it's it's a moral qualification because really you cannot teach something that you're not living or you're not striving to live so he's he's, he's a skilled teacher yeah, if you look at first timothy chapter 5 verse 17 First Timothy chapter 5 verse 17 He says Let the elders Who rule well Be considered worthy of a double Sorry, worthy of double honor Especially those who labor in Preaching and teaching And the idea there of laboring It means He, he works to Exhaustion In the word and doctrine So So it doesn't mean someone who is lazy he must be able to labor to a point of exhaustion so he must work hard in the word and teaching so I guess time is not on our side um, If is there anything you'd like to 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 ask for clarification before I pray let's pray Father we thank you for your word this morning indeed the standard is set so high yet Lord it's the work of the Holy Spirit that equips men for the work of the ministry We pray, Father, that you'll give us godly leaders, you'll raise godly leaders who will take the gospel to all the corners of the world. Do forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Lead us, Lord, in your paths of righteousness, for your name's sake. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen.